Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Alrighty, so we're going to do a reading today from Luke 16, uh, verses 19 to 31. We're going to read. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up, and they saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. Steve. Great. Thanks, Matthew. Good. Nice to be with you. Uh, If I haven't met you, then uh, nice to have you here. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the gospel of Luke and these parables that we're looking at and how they speak to us and confront us and encourage us and challenge us and speak to us through this uh, one again today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us open hearts to hear what you'd have, you'd say to us as your people. Amen. I think this parable can be summarized like this. Jesus loves to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And his teaching and ministry is full of it. He loves to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. So we're in this series of, uh, of, of parables in Luke's gospel, and uh, this one is definitely, I would, well, arguably the most offensive to our cultural and temporal sensibilities. There are few doctrines that believers and unbelievers in the West are so disturbed by than the doctrine of hell. How could a loving God send someone to hell? And for all eternity... Is that not disproportionate for the life they've lived? And what about those that never heard? It doesn't seem reasonable to us. Um, And surely, well, we live in a tolerant, inclusive society these days, don't we? I mean, how dare anyone judge anyone, let alone God, and certainly not the Christians? It's important questions, crucial questions, and they're important objections that we all have, uh, certainly I've had, and, and you still wrestle with these issues. For believers and non-believers alike, we either have a tendency to ignore or reject altogether the doctrine of hell. Sure, 
ancient primitive societies where, you know, they believe that kind of stuff. Well, where we've progressed, you know, and we don't need this anymore. Uh, you know, we used to believe the earth is flat, and now we know it's round. It's a similar sort of thing. There's one problem with ignoring or rejecting the doctrine of hell, and it's this. The most loving, caring, gentle man that ever walked planet Earth talked more about hell than he did heaven, and he talks more about hell than all the other biblical authors put together. Even the most celebrated sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, talks about hell four times, or the word Gehenna. As one person put it, if Jesus... The Lord of love and the author of grace spoke about hell more often and in more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else. It must be a crucial doctrine. So we ask the question, why? Well, let's look at the parable and see why we can, what we can learn and how it can help, hopefully answer some of our intellectual questions and see why we mustn't ignore or reject the doctrine of hell. And if we do, it's to our peril. There's uh, two people contrasted in this story. Uh, there's a rich man, verse 19, He's self-indulgent. He cares for no one but himself. And not even the beggar who is laid at his gates every day does he care for. And he wants everyone to know about his money. Do you see that in verse 19? What is he doing? He's got purple and fine linen is what he wears. He thought he was a king. You know, who wears kings? Who wears purple but royalty? He probably thought he was a king. And notice it says every day, verse 19. He lived in luxury, which implies he didn't obey the Sabbath by giving his servants a day off. There was no rest in people serving him. And then in contrast to the rich man, there's the poor beggar, verse 20, who was laid at the rich man's gate full of sores and longing to eat the food that fell off the rich man's table. If you've ever been to the developing world, you'll have met a man like Lazarus. When I was 18, I went to Ecuador for the year, and uh, I I met this man not at the gate of the city, but at uh, the bus stop of the town. And so every tourist, in fact, anyone who had money who could afford to go from one town to another saw this guy. He had no legs. He was unbearably skinny. He had a few teeth. His arms stopped at his elbows. His skin was terribly scarred. He was cramped up under a blanket, and he held out stumpy arms asking for money. That's the kind of character we have in this story. His only friends are dogs. Who, want, who licked the sores on his body. He's been neglected by the human community and embraced by the animal community. And to make matters worse, he's in earshot of the great extravagant banquets that the rich man has, which must have made his pain even more acute. Leanne and I and the kids this summer were fortunate enough to go to Alcatraz, the, the sort of rock island off, uh, off uh, San Francisco with the, with, the, with the prison that's now been closed down. And uh, famously, they said, you know, what, is, what, what did the prisoners find hardest about Alcatraz? And it wasn't the horrible conditions or separation from family or any of that. Uh, the worst punishment of Alcatraz, our tour guide repeatedly told us, was that the sounds and the sights and the smells and the tastes of San Francisco could be seen and heard and smelled every day. They're in touching distance, but you couldn't have them. That's what Lazarus experienced every day. Help was near at hand. As you imagine, this overweight rich man comes from to and from his banquets and his luxury, and he's sitting at his gate, but help is withheld. But notice two things here as the story unfolds. First of all, did you notice that Lazarus is silent, which denotes peace? 
In the whole parable, he never says a word. So we never learned that he once complained. He lived in quiet harmony with the animal world around him, regardless of you know, the harshness of the environment. He was a man at peace within his sufferings from the way the parable is told. And secondly, he has a name, Lazarus. What is remarkable is this silent poor beggar is the only person in any of Jesus' parables that has a name. We have a father, we have an older brother, we have a younger brother, we have a good Samaritan, we have a rich man. None of them have names. All of the parables and stories Jesus told, no one has a name except Lazarus. We have a farmer and a sower. But this person is named and known by God. And there's some irony to the name, because in Hebrew, Lazarus means the one whom God helps. Everything in the story so far seems to say that that is not the case. And in contrast to Lazarus, we have a nameless rich man. But that's the point. He's just a rich man. His whole identity was bound up in money. If he didn't have money, he didn't have a sense of self. He had no identity outside of money. He was defined by being rich. And when he lost his riches, he lost himself. Whereas Lazarus, the poor beggar, has an identity and a name that is distinct from his circumstances. He has an identity and a value outside of his money. He's the one that God helps. So verses 19 to 21 tell contrasting stories on earth. And then those stories are contrasted in the opposite way in eternity, verses 22 to 23. There's a great reversal. The forgotten beggar on the streets is given the greatest ever funeral procession as the angels carry him to Abraham's side. In life he experienced pain, but in death he experienced comfort. Whereas the rich man, he ends up in hell, or literally Hades, the place of the dead in Jewish thoughts. And twice we learn that he's in torment, verse 23 and 28. Do you see that? And twice we learn that he's in agony. Do you see that, verse 24 and 25? So from this place of agony and torment, he sees Lazarus far away at Abraham's side. And verse 24, he says to Abraham, send Lazarus over to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in the fire, in this fire. And Abraham objects and says, no, a great chasm has been fixed and no one can cross over. In other words, the verdict is final. There's no possibility of purgatory or anything like that. And Abraham's point is that what has happened on earth has been reversed in heaven and hell. The comforted are in agony, while those in agony are comforted, verse 25. And notice something about the rich man. This is vital. Do you see that? He recognizes Lazarus. And twice he says his name to Abraham, verse 25 and 27. In other words, he walked by the gate every day and he did notice and he knew his name. He knew his desperate plight, and he chose to ignore him. He had seen Lazarus with his eyes, but never with his heart. And notice something else about the rich man. Does he apologize to Lazarus? No. 
He's not sheepish. He's not ashamed. He's been revealed and judged for being the, the nasty man he was on earth, but he doesn't even speak to Lazarus. Instead of speaking to Lazarus, he makes demands on Lazarus to Abraham. Twice he says, send Lazarus, verse 24 and 27. He treats him like a servant, someone that should come and do his beck and call. He treats him with contempt. In other words, as on earth, so in hell. His behavior and his attitude has not changed. Instead of an apology, he demands service. The rich man still expects everyone to come and do his bidding. Lazarus is just another pawn for him to maneuver. You can imagine the original listeners to Jesus' parable being electrified. What will Lazarus do? They must be thinking in the parable. Will he scold him? Will he explode in anger? Will there be a tirade of abuse? Say, this is how you ignored me all the time on earth. Lazarus is silent. He has no score to settle, no vengeance to enact. He is silent even in heaven as he was silent outside the rich man's gate. As on earth, so in heaven. The trajectory of his soul is the same. So how does the dialogue continue? Verse 27. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He still hasn't addressed Lazarus. He hasn't asked for forgiveness. He still treats him as a slave. Now, slave, now go serve my family. He's lost in his own world, the rich man. Verse 29. Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Your family doesn't need another messenger. They have all the messengers they need. Moses, Elijah, David, Isaiah, all the Old Testament prophets and the scriptures. They have all the information they need. But as is often the case with rich people, they think they know best on every subject. So he objects and tries to correct Abraham. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham. You don't know, I know. He said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And commentators have pointed out that this is not a gesture of compassion, but rather an effort to blame shift. He's saying he did not have a chance, he did not have adequate information to avoid hell. But Abraham forcibly says that his family has been well informed through the scriptures. They have enough information. And notice something so ironic, can you see it? He is saying his family might be willing to repent when he hasn't even given a hint of an indication that he is willing to repent. He's so self-absorbed. He's so demanding in hell as he was on earth. He hasn't changed or given any sense of of a hint of remorse. It's intriguing, isn't it? He's in deep denial. He's angry at God. He's unable to admit that it's a just decision. He's wishing he could be less miserable, sure, but he's in no way seeking the presence of God. As on earth, so in hell. Abraham finishes verse 31. He said to them, if you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham's point as he pushes back on the rich man is saying, no, the issue is not greater information and evidence. It's whether someone has responded to the evidence they already have. The issue is not evidence but the heart. If you've read the famous story of Pharaoh's confrontation with Moses or Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, there are miracles aplenty, including in John chapter 11, Lazarus being raised from the dead. And in John chapter 12, we hear that the Pharisees hardened their heart at the miracles. It's not more miracles and evidence 
that's needed. It's a change of heart. It's not information. It's humility. And then the parable ends. Like all these parables, so abrupt, so sort of unreconciled. What's going to happen? And what the rich man is he going to? We know Lazarus, but what about the rich man? Will he change his attitude? And I think that's Jesus' point that he wants us, the listeners, to put ourselves in the position of the rich man and say, Will you change your attitude while you have a chance? He's had his chance. Don't end up like the rich man in that final and irrevocable state of separation, fire, torment, and agony, not being willing to change your attitude while you had the chance. And that is what this parable is all about. Jesus speaks in such candid terms. You know, in the World Cup final yesterday, Carl Sinclair was knocked out in the first minute, and they didn't use it, but they often use smelling salts to wake people up, you know, if they've been knocked out. You know, so it's like, oh, sort of, this is smelling salts. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. Jesus doesn't do this because he wants to condemn everyone. He's saying, wake up. That's the point. As I said at the start, Jesus loves to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. But he disturbs us, he jolts us out of our self-denying, self-absorbed, self-justifying state of mind, especially for those who are rich and comfortable. The parable tells us the great dangers of wealth. Wealth has a tendency to make us proud, stubborn, self-sufficient, and ultimately blind from spiritual and eternal realities. Jesus wants to wake us up. He wants to wake the disciples up. He wants to wake the Pharisees up, the crowds up. We said a few times in this gospel, haven't we? Luke's gospel is, a, is the gospel where Jesus is portrayed as the voice for the voiceless, the champion of justice, the, the befriender of the outcast. If, if there was ever a social gospel to be made, it's, you make it out of, out of Luke's gospel where Jesus comes to care for the needs of humanity in practicable terms. And here, he is actually challenging the systems of wealth and urging the world and the rich of the world to use their wealth to help the poor. Absolutely, that's one application of this parable. But please don't turn Jesus into a bleeding heart liberal or make the Christian gospel purely a social gospel. We must care for the poor in practical terms, but Jesus is a straight down the line conservative too. And he says, you've got to know straight there's heaven and hell and there's this life and the decisions you make matter and get on the right side of history. In other words, we cannot box Jesus into our political agenda. The kingdom of God cuts right through right and left. And it embraces parts and rejects part of both. We must never make Jesus fit our political or natural uh, preference to the left or the right. The kingdom of God transcends it. So let's piece together our doctrine of hell and think of those objections that I raised at the start. So what is hell from this passage? Well, put simply, hell is irrevocable eternal separation from God. Verse 26 describes it as a chasm. Repeatedly what the Bible says is the consequence of our sin is separation from God. The picture we get of this straight at the, heart of the, at the start of the Bible is Adam and Eve sinning and being cast out of the presence of God as they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Hell is agony because it is separation from God fully, finally, and forever. Two images used for hell, Jesus uses one of them here, he uses the other one lots of times, is fire and darkness. Are these images to be taken literally or are they metaphorical? They must be metaphorical. You can't have fire and darkness at the same time. Fire creates light. So what do the images refer to? 
While darkness refers to isolation and fire to disintegration of being separated from God. You see, the consequences for sin in the Bible is separation from God, as I said. And being separated, you start to find that you're isolated and you're disintegrating in yourself. We were originally created to know, worship, and enjoy God. He's the author of life, love, uh, community, joy, comfort. And in his presence, we have all those things and many other blessings. But sin removes us from the the presence of God that sustains and supports us. It's a bit like water is to a fish. We were created to be in the presence of God of which we knew all the other good things in life. You separate us from the presence of God through sin and like water to fish, our lives start to slowly ebb away. Isolation, disintegration. And you see this writ small with addicts in this life. Anyone who gets addicted to chemicals, they isolate themselves and they disintegrate in lots of ways. But that's just a fast forwarding what's happening for all of us. So Paul puts it like this. When you're talking about, he says, he will, peri- he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's the punishment? They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Rebecca McCauchlin, in this brilliant book, Confronting Christianity, you must read. If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus means eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. Which brings me to my second point. Hell is the self-chosen trajectory of the soul going on forever. Think about this man. I kept trying to make the point as I retold the parable. He doesn't repent. He doesn't show remorse. He's self-absorbed. He doesn't speak to Lazarus or Abraham with any humility. In other words, the direction of his heart, which was revealed on earth, is only magnified, cemented, and continued forever. That's hell. What was revealed on earth was once, at some point, Concrete and cemented forever and only getting worse. In his fantasy, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. And they're urged to leave behind the sins that have trapped them in hell. And they refuse. Lewis's descriptions of the people are striking because we recognize in them the self-delusion and self-absorption writ small in our own sins and addictions and problems. And he says this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And that's why the unhelpful caricatures of hell as a place of black devils with fanged teeth and red horns and red-hot iron pokers is so unhelpful. We've made a mockery out of the seriousness and the dreadfulness of hell. No, hell is serious and hell is dangerous because the outcome of a self-centered, self-absorbed life means you're separated from ever from from God. In increasing isolation, denial, delusion and self-absorption, you lose all humility and the idea of heaven seems like a sham to you. 
In our minds, I think we think, you know, this is how hell works. God gives us our time. We didn't make the right choices in this life. He then casts our soul into hell for eternity. And as we fly, we, you know, as we are cast into hell, we cry, Lord, have mercy. And he says, no, you've had your time. Completely misrepresents the parable. And misunderstands the nature of sin and hell. Hell is primary separation from God that we choose on earth and we can continue to choose after death. As on earth, so in hell. We didn't want God in this life, so why would we want him in the next? Romans chapter 1 puts it so forcefully. It says God's judgment is revealed by saying, have what you want, have your desires. That's how God judges us. Lewis later in his book says this, there are only two types of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, or those who God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Elsewhere, he says this, you must read the book if you, if, if you like this. He says, the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. I find this terrifying. And it helps me understand fire and darkness. Because I can see it in my own soul. And so can we answer some of the questions that we had at the beginning? Is God unfair to judge us? Quite the contrary. G.K. Chesterton put it like this. Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. God is saying, have it your way. C.S. Lewis put it like this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is, is, is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their, their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Second question, is it disproportionate? Well, only if you think that once God judges people, they respect him for it. But what we learn in this is that those judged by God remain unrepentant, defiant, and self-absorbed forever, forever rejecting God. The book of Revelation, which I'm just reading in my own personal devotion, it constantly says, and God pours out his wrath, and then they say, they do not repent. There's a, there's a, you can, your heart can become so hardened and stubborn and entrenched like Pharaoh's heart that you wouldn't even imagine changing your mind. So you forever keep rebelling against God. And therefore the judgment can keep going forever too, in a proportionate way. What about those that have never heard of Jesus? Well, that's what the man argues with Abraham, isn't it? Give me more evidence. His family did have evidence. They hadn't responded to the evidence they had. In other words, we all have sufficient evidence to turn from our sins and to find God and his grace. The Bible says all of us, from creation to our conscience, to the scriptures, to the testimony of the church, to you guys now listening to this talk right now, we have enough evidence to turn. There's a harrowing verse for me in Romans 3 when it says, every mouth will be silenced. You know, on judgment day, no one's going to say, I didn't have enough evidence. And you go, well, what about the babies or the mentally handicapped or those living in a jungle? Listen, God is a wise, merciful 
just judge. If that's a problem to you, I think he's got it solved. The point is, what are you doing? That's the point of Jesus' parable. Let God be God. He's the judge. Stop trying to judge yourself. Stop trying to organize everything now. That's his job. Then. But no one's going to turn around and go, there wasn't enough evidence. That's just, a, a, that's just our problem with earthly perspective. Jesus will do the right thing on that day, and every mouth will be silenced. So think about it. What does Jesus want to reiterate in this parable? What's he trying to do? Well, it's smelling salts, as I said. He's trying to wake us up, but he's also saying there is going to be a reversal in the afterlife that will make much sense of this life. The first on earth will be last, and the last on earth will be first. In other words, the afterlife does bring a justice for much of the sufferings and rejection that many in this world, like Lazarus, and ourselves, to different ways, experience. I think this is a huge... If you lose the afterlife, what comfort is there for thousands and millions of people in this world? Leanne and I were watching their news the other night, and you know, horrific what's going on in Syria. And there was an image, and it says, you know... And there's this girl who's probably Annabelle's age, my daughter... She had a leg, a leg, uh, had a leg blown off by a bomb. Lord, tell me there's justice. Tell me there's an opportunity for reversal. Yeah, I live in the comfortable West, and I'm not having a bomb blow my legs off. But what about that girl in Syria that we all can't help? The Book of Revelation says this. After I, after I heard this, what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven sounded, shouted, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Why? Why does salvation, glory, and power belong to our God? For just and true are his judgments. On that final day, there's going to be a moment when every one of us sings. We sing. We don't go, oh, the doctrine of hell. We're going to sing. Hallelujah. They didn't get away with it, people that were nasty and horrible in this life. And you know, I grew up in Idi, I grew up in Idi Amin, in Uganda, and my parents knew people that he'd killed, and he lived a nice, rich life and died with a. I think he had a you know massive mansion with a, with a swimming pool. He said, "You said justice. There's justice, and there'll be no miscarriage. That all, all the things that we can't understand now, one day it's going to be a huge comfort, and we're going to sing hallelujah." A Croatian theologian called Miroslav Volf has put it better than anyone else in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Volf grew up during the devastation of the Balkan Wars and he saw his land pillaged, his women raped, and his people killed. He knew what it was like to grow up in modern-day Syria where the kids' legs get blown off by bombs. And he writes... If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence... That God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. In other words, God can come in wrath. That's why I don't. And then he says this, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence, that we shouldn't take up the sword, requires a belief in divine vengeance, which will be unpopular to many, where? In the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home to refuse the idea of God, of a God of wrath. In a sun-scorched land, 
soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. We need a God of judgment. Of course you do. If you don't, it's because you live a nice, comfortable life. Like the rich man. Wake up. Get the parable? So let me finish. Why is Jesus worthy of worship? I would argue that he's the maker, he's the creator. For that, he is due worth. He gives us every breath, every moment we have. For that, he is due praise and worship. I worship him in a deeper way because he's rescued me from the jaws of hell and from eternal and final and irrevocable separation from God and a personal isolation and disintegration that I couldn't stop. But he came and he rescued me. You get rid of hell? Well, let me quote someone else. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A guy called Nierberg in the 1930s saw where American liberal Protestantism was going, you know, the church in, the, in, in America, and they said, they don't believe in God's wrath, they don't believe in hell, and he says, you don't believe in a cross then, do you? And without a cross, you can't sing love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Jesus is my example. He's a good teacher. It might be a sentimental love. It doesn't get me on my knees in adoration and worship of this God who came and bled and died. And when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, and then you think, yeah, that's the God I worship. People, people often say, oh, God's a God of love and he loves me. How do you know that? I know that because he bled and died. So I could not be cast out of God's presence but welcomed with open arms. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing at how great our God is. And I urge you, if you're not a believer here today, this is a parable Jesus told to get you thinking. If you are a believer here today, it's a parable to say, wake up. Don't be lost in the comfort of wealth. And for all of us, particularly those who are Jesus followers, let our worship be deep and profound and wonderful. We have a reason to sing. Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. And we'll head over, hand over to the band. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that even the tough things that you teach us in your word can end up being so good for our soul. And when we see all these things from the light of eternity and from your heavenly throne, which is a throne established on justice and righteousness, Lord, some of the puzzles make sense. And the ones that don't, we can trust you for, for the future. But I pray we'd wake up to spiritual and eternal realities as Jesus wanted his original hearers to. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.